95.1 FM, AM 1080, KYMN Northfields. Time now for a brand new program uh, to uh, happen here on KYMN Radio that debuted last month. We're going to call it Legal Talk with uh, State Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore. And normally it would be Rich Larson sitting in with... Uh, with Justice Moore, but not this time around. Rich is uh, not in today, so I get to do the uh, the fill-in chores. I'm kind of the substitute teacher. But uh, Justice Moore, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Uh, uh, we made it through one show, and it's good to have number two. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's a great addition to the KYMN lineup, so we appreciate uh, the work that you and you and Rich do. We're going to, you know, last month, it's going to be a once-a-month program. Last month, debut, we talked about more about you and kind of some generalities and some personal things but didn't kind of didn't have enough time to to go a little bit further so we're going to start off by uh, talking a little bit uh, further about your appointment to uh, the uh, supreme court and what it's like to be a justice here in minnesota and then we're going to have a, a few uh, thoughts on the Roe v. Wade controversy, or actually the leak controversy, I guess, uh, a little bit later on in the show. So, folks, hold on tight with that. Uh, Justice Moore, let's uh, first of all talk uh, about your Supreme Court. We were talking right before we went on the air. It was two years ago today that the yeah. announcement was made. Yeah, it was, Jeff. It's hard to believe two years have gone uh, by since that, that day where I traveled up to uh, St. Paul with my wife and, and met my oldest son, and we went into a press conference with the governor, a COVID press conference. Of course, this was right in the part of the uh, the, pre, the initial pandemic, and so there were only three reporters allowed into the room in St. Paul. Normally, that's done in the governor's conference room at the Capitol. It's quite a shindig with you know media everywhere and, and you know supporters, and it was it was a little odd. It was the governor, it was me, it was my wife and son, and three reporters, and uh, there were some you know online questions coming in, but. I got to answer questions for probably about 40 minutes. It was a bit of a baptism, frankly, into, you know, what life is like as a <laughs> Supreme Court justice. I, For the listeners that uh, may not have heard Rich and I talk about my prior experience, I was for 25 years in southwest Minnesota in Worthington down in Nobles County, where I was county attorney and then a district court judge for eight and a half years. So I transitioned from the district court to the Supreme Court uh, starting in August of 2020. The announcement was made in May and then there's some time to wind things down and transition. And so that's what I did. Now, the uh, vetting process, I find kind of fascinating in that, uh, well, what we see for the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, is everything's pretty much out in the open. You, know, you have hearings and such. There's a lot of media coverage, probably not quite as much on the Minnesota state level. But the vetting process, is it essentially the same? Can you walk us through that? Well, in Minnesota, we use a process that is called the Judicial Selection Commission. Now, the governor is not required to pick somebody from that commission from that um, commission's choices, but generally the commission meets with Supreme Court appointments. There's a panel that's created by the governor that usually includes people from from his or her staff plus people from the Judicial Selection Commission, and they solicit applications. They actually um, they actually encourage people to apply. They vet the applications and it's a fairly intense vetting process you don't know about it until you hear later by from people that were talked to that maybe weren't on your reference list but maybe got named by another reference Uh, so you submit 
10, you know, 10, uh, I think it was 10 recommendations plus a writing sample plus a lengthy application uh, to the Judicial Selection Commission. And then they decide who they're going to interview uh, for the position. And so the interviews are then done um, by the Judicial Selection Commission panel uh, that the governor puts together for appellate court appointments. And uh, it's a, you know, back when I did this, it was all Zoom. It was all virtual, which was really unusual, frankly, because I had been a candidate for the Court of Appeals in 2019, and so I did in-person interviews there. Vastly different feel to it. Uh, but the, the Judicial Selection Commission panel um, meets and then convenes uh, and then recommends candidates to the governor for appointment. And then the governor um, interviews with the lieutenant governor and members of his or her staff, plus some people from the Judicial Selection Commission, in a second round of interviews and so that again in 2020 that was all done virtually as well and then a selection is made based on that and there's you know there's a writing analysis there's obviously vetting going on and that's happening behind the scenes the uh uh, the process you do have to, I guess, uh, the application process. Are, did, were there a lot of candidates? Do you find out how many candidates? You don't. That- you don't. It's a okay. black hole from a standpoint of mm-hmm. knowledge. I mean, sometimes you hear about people who are interested in in Worthington and District Court. You, when I applied in 2011, 2012, you kind of knew what the lay of the land was. I mean, that preliminary interview in Worthington, you know, the other candidates were all sort of lined up outside the door. So you Mm -hmm. knew who was going to be there. Um, Not so much for the state Supreme Court. Uh, I did not know until the finalist list was printed who was out there. Is there a, uh, I guess, the political connection? Uh, In your case, you were appointed by the governor, but do you have, uh, is it, Having those political connections on a statewide or even a local uh, level, is that helpful at all? Is it harmful? Is, is that even taken into account? You know, you you would really have to talk to the, the individual governors about that. I don't think Minnesota has a tradition of having political appointments for the courts. Now, obviously, every governor, you could look at appointments and maybe draw your own conclusions about that, but our judicial selection process is completely separated from the politics of it. The judges in Minnesota are elected officials after they're appointed, but they don't run as partisan they don't run as, you know, Democrats or Republicans. It's a nonpartisan position. And so politics really don't have a place in it. Uh, they're, you know, the governors obviously do get to where they are through a political process. And so to that extent, you know, they are, you know, wanting people on the courts that undoubtedly fulfill what their vision is of what a good judge would be. But that, you know, if you look at the can the qualifications that the Judicial Selection Commission and the governor puts out for who it would be a good judge, it refers to things as temperament, legal ability, legal acumen, reputation, um, you know, health, fitness, those sorts of things, not politics. Um, You know, people that are appointed for political reasons typically have trouble in the courts because they don't have some of those other qualities that really, I think, help make a judge a good judge. 
Let's talk about your first day on the uh, court. You get there. Did, did you know anyone at the time, any of the other justices? Uh, had you had dealing with them, uh, either as a lawyer or as another judge? I had had some brief contact with a few of them over year, the years, but I really didn't know my colleagues well at all. You know, my network was an outstate network, frankly. I was, you know, working in the 5th Judicial District. My colleagues were from Mankato to South Dakota to Iowa. And so, you know, I had seen members of the court at conferences. I will say after I was appointed, the members of the court reached out to me, um, had very, you know, wonderful telephone conversations with all of them, email exchanges. Um, one of the members of the court, Justice uh, G. Barry Anderson, the most senior uh, member, sort of was my mentor. So he and I talked a lot. Um, I went to lunch with a couple of the other justices beforehand. So when I showed up on August 3rd, 2020, I think is the, my first day on the, on the job, uh, I wasn't a total stranger in a strange land, but it was a vastly different experience from being a district court judge in rural Minnesota, where you are sort of, you know, for lack of the better word, you know, it's your fiefdom, it's your county, you you know, in small counties, there's one judge or, or fewer. And so if suddenly I'm the junior member of a court of seven with a vast support network of staff attorneys, law clerks, and judicial assistants that I have to get to know and work with. And uh, and so that's a just a very different scenario than the state district court. And, and let's talk about the uh, Supreme Court. You know, you get there. I have this notion, this image, I guess, of the Supreme Court being you know just this long desk slash bench with all the justices, perhaps with the powdered wigs on <laughs> from yesteryear. Uh, you know, just passing down wisdom to people. What is it like, though? I mean, is uh, you, you get to work? I'm, I'm sure you have your own office. Is it an office building? I have no idea where the Supreme Court even is in Minnesota. Great question, Jeff. So the Capitol Complex uh, is where the Minnesota Judicial Center is located. It's right on the corner of Cedar Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, right across the street from the Capitol on the east side. And so uh, listeners that maybe remember where the old Minnesota Historical Society building was, you know, that's where part of our offices are. We took over that in the late 80s and when the the History Center was moved across I-94, and then a, a Judicial Center was built, and that building houses the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, the Tax Court, uh, and all the administrative offices of the state courts. And yes, every we're on the fourth floor of the Judicial Center. Every justice has a chambers, as they say, that, that's comprised of an office, law clerk offices, and in a reception area, in kind of a kitchenette. And you know, the chambers are very nice. They're wood. They're appointed. They look. They look like you might guess they would look. The bench itself in the Capitol is um, is just a you know historic you know uh, amazing place. We used to have nine justices in the state Supreme Court. So the the Capitol courtroom, which is one of two courtrooms we have, was actually built for nine, and so it's very imposing. It's you know dark wood and you know lamps around it. But you know the I have to keep reminding myself that we're just people you know appointed to do a job. I I do have those pinch me moments were driving up to that i realize i'm you know i'm not you know this isn't worthington anymore <laughs> i'm driving up to the state supreme court and it's uh you know i just have to 
sort of put those feelings on the shelf and just focus on doing my job as best I can. And once you get to know the people that are there, uh, I'm, they're people. They are incredibly bright and talented judges, justices. But, you know, we have a lot of those people in the court system from top to bottom. I mean, my colleagues in the district court and court of appeals, we, we're just really blessed in this state to have a lot of good people in judge positions. You're listening to a new show here on KYMN Radio. It's called Legal Talk with a state Supreme Court uh, Justice Gordon Moore. Uh, Justice Moore, let's uh, t- kind of give us an idea. And I know from listening to your past show, you, you, you talked a little bit about this, but yeah, day in the life of the Supreme Court. Uh, what, uh, what What is it like? Is it uh, early to bed, uh, early uh, up we do, working right? late? And, uh, <clears throat> well, you better better make sure your glasses are, are the, your prescription's been checked because <laughs> you will be reading a lot. It's reading beyond what I could ever have imagined. The district court, by by uh, contrast, was you know sit on the bench and and deal with things as they came in for the most part. There was prep work, but not the prep work like the Supreme Court does. But the Supreme Court calendar uh, starts in September and goes until June. And uh, every month there are two weeks of oral argument and then two weeks that are reserved for administrative duties, more opinion writing, special term calendars where we decide what cases we're going to take. And so there isn't a typical day, but in a typical court uh, court day, so to speak, generally court starts at nine o'clock. So we have to get there bright and early and be ready to go because we walk over to the Capitol courtroom and we have to get situated. And, and you know, when the Supreme Court, when the hearing starts at nine o'clock, you know, at eight fifty nine, the gavel will be falling. I mean, it's uh, it, the trains run on time at the state Supreme court. And, you know, we, we hear typically two oral arguments in a day, and then we conference those cases immediately. We talk about them and reach a preliminary decision. And then we go back and, you know, continue reading for the next day's cases or for opinions that we're working on right now. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, juggling of reading, writing, and, you know, meeting, basically, I guess is what I would say. Your experience on the bench so far, has there been, uh, my, I'm imagining that uh, the justices that you sit with probably come from a somewhat varied background, even though academia and uh, the study of the law is certainly the common thread. But is there a lot of differences in opinion? And are those differences minor? Or are there some pretty major? Well, the first thing to know, Jeff, is in our operating procedures, the you know the first statement you'll see is that our court is a collegial court, meaning that um, we decide cases working together. These aren't sil- seven different silos that don't talk to each other. I mean, we are a collegial court. That doesn't mean that we agree on every legal issue. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be unanimous on those issues, but we talk about it. We 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 think through things together. We we debate, we think through the tough legal questions, and frankly, um, my mind is frequently changed, or at least altered, or I reflect a lot on statements my colleagues make. And so, I think one of the key uh, tenets of being a Supreme Court justice is, is to be willing to listen and to potentially change your views if if you think your views need to be changed based on the input of your colleagues. Now, uh, there are disagreements. We are typically unanimous in somewhere around 70% of the cases. Last year was in the low 80s. Uh, this year probably won't be that high. But even in cases where there are dis- there are separate writings, dissents and concurrences, that doesn't mean that it's personal. That I mean, it's just, it's a different view of the 
the law in a different view of the, what the outcome should be. And uh, so, you know, yes, there are disagreements, but they are not disagreements that become personal to the degree that we can't communicate or we can't cooperate. Mm. Uh, once again, Gordon Moore is with us. Uh, you're listening to uh, Legal Talk. Let's, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to uh, pass along, mention while we before we switch gears a little bit and go into uh, some of the uh, disputes, some of the things we've seen in the media. Uh, is there anything else about being a Supreme Court justice, the day to day, that you'd like to ring up? <clears throat> Well, it's just an incredible honor, Jeff. When you know, one of the things that the court hasn't been able to do much in the last two years, and we're starting to, is to get out in the community. Uh, the Supreme Court takes a roadshow to the law schools for a, to do an oral argument in front of law students every year, uh, and we do two oral arguments before high school audiences. And I haven't gotten to do that yet. I'm really looking forward to that because I was involved in a Supreme Court uh, oral argument in Worthington back in 2014, and the court has a community dinner the night before and it's just a great opportunity to frankly get out of St. Paul, meet people, talk to people and then allow the high school community and the community you know writ large to watch us uh, do an oral argument. And so it's I think it's important for the people to understand that you know we are you know the ultimately the people's court, we are the you know the highest court in the state from a standpoint of where we are on the on the on the you know I guess the pyramid of decision making uh, but that doesn't make uh, us different than other judges that you meet. And we just, we enjoy the opportunity to do that. And so I, I think it's, you know, I'm reminded of that, you know, honor and privilege every time I get out in the community, people really appreciate that. Let's, let's move on to uh, some of the headlines, some things that have made headlines as of late. And once again, uh, I'm Jeff uh, Johnson, host, uh, hosting this, sitting in for Rich Larson. I know you and Rich have had a number of conversations uh, regarding what you can talk about and what yes. you can't talk about. And I've had, a, I guess, some of those with you. But if, if I go into areas you don't feel comfortable with, uh, let me know. I will tell you because the <laughs> Code of Judicial Conduct requires me to. So okay. it isn't, uh, this isn't the world according to Gordon more. This is the world according to the, the rules that govern how judges operate. All right. Roe v. Wade, Roe versus Wade uh, leak that came out. A uh, Supreme Court justice had written an opinion. Uh, justice Alito, I believe, had written a, an opinion. Somebody got a hold of that and leaked it. I guess, where do we start when we talk about this? Uh, we can't talk so much about Roe v. Wade, but uh, can we talk about the leak? We can. I, I can't talk about the substance of the case, Jeff. Mm-hmm. It's a very, uh, you know, obviously contentious legal issue right now that's before the U.S. Supreme Court. And there is at least one case in Ramsey County right now involving abortion rights that that is percolating through. And so, you know, I can't comment on anything that could come before the court and I wouldn't want to. The, the leak, obviously, is something we've talked about because the draft opinion that that came out of conference was apparently confirmed by the chief justice as being an authentic uh, draft. I, I stress draft. Uh, you know, it it certainly read as though it were you know ready for publication. But I think people should not draw the conclusion that that is the final word on things because uh, 
what happens with uh, majority opinions, generally the senior justice that is in the majority, the chief justice, you know, assigns that justice to write the opinion or in cases where, you know, there's a particular interest from another justice, perhaps that justice. But that draft is circulated through the court. And uh, the Politico story that, that I saw had a PDF of the actual opinion. And you can see in the upper right corner the list of the justices in seniority. And that's how that's what a circulation list looks like. Those the the draft is circulated through the other chambers and the other justices comment on it. Now the the writing that is characterized as the majority is based on a preliminary vote count. That's where it has to start. The chief justice has to assign somebody to write the opinion and they start based on that preliminary count. But that isn't necessarily where things end up. And I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, there could there could have been a lot of work done on that opinion since that original draft was circulated and I think it was February is was the date of it. And so, you know, here we are in May. It hasn't been issued yet. It'll probably come out in the end of June, early July. And it's very likely that it won't be the same thing. Uh, and it's very likely that if that five-person majority does compromise the court's opinion, there will be separate writings. There will be dissents, perhaps concurrences. And, uh, you know, in the Casey decision, there were there was kind of a, a middle ground position that ended up kind of deciding the case back in 1992. So... There's a lot going on, Jeff. I wouldn't want to speculate about the motives of anybody there, but I will say that the the leaking of that draft opinion is an extraordinary thing. That just doesn't happen. I think that's been confirmed by all legal commentators from all sides of the spectrum, uh, former clerks, you know, justices. That that's just not something that happens. Now there are some that think that maybe it should. Maybe it should be. There should be more transparency brought into the opinion writing process. But I would argue that. It's it's necessary for there to be confidentiality in these discussions. If if you can have confidential, candid discussions with your colleagues about cases, it's going to be really hard to get to hopefully consensus positions, middle ground positions. If everything becomes extreme, you know, you're pushed to one side or the other. I think that's where we get into some trouble. And so, you know, I from our standpoint from our clerks they're told from day one that they come on the job in fact somebody was joking that it was the, maybe chief justice Berger had what he called the 22nd rule and that that rule was you know if you if you leak something to the press that the court's talking about you know you'll be gone in 20 seconds or something to that regard i mean it's that serious uh, it is a very serious breach of trust and confidentiality and has unfortunately cast sort of a pall over this whole court term. I think it's really raised a lot of difficult questions. Yeah, and what I find uh, fascinating is there are actually a, a very limited amount of people, from what I understand from news reports, that would have even access to that. Do you know how many people might have access to that? Not at the <clears throat> United States Supreme Court mm-hmm. level. I can tell you that in uh, the offices of the Minnesota Supreme Court, you know, law clerks, uh, staff attorneys, uh, judicial assistants would have access to circulating opinions, but nobody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is that is strictly held in in confidence. Uh, Opinions change. Uh, Preliminary votes. I've been involved in cases where the preliminary vote didn't turn out to be the final vote. Um, we, we have had cases where that majority has flipped, sometimes based upon a justice reconsidering a position or perhaps a really strong and well-written 
separate writing, convince that justice to think about his or her position and change. And so that does happen. And the final and the final product is an input of, of of those who have interest in the case and so you know editing goes on you know right until usually the final day before it gets issued looking at the US Supreme Court again and I don't know how much you follow this or look at it and this might be a little bit out in left field but i think of the, the the security that is in place obviously somebody leaked this it could have been some type of clerk or who knows somebody involved with that system have do you has there been any uh, concern that you know here I hear a lot of governments doing uh, you know cyber intelligence and such the leak could come from WikiLeaks or Vladimir Putin or the man on the moon I have no idea have the security that they have on the Supreme Court and the computers that they use my my guess would be those are very very. Uh, uh, Highly advanced. Yes. Cybersecurity is a critically important part of the Minnesota judicial branch. And it's, it's, as you can guess, has gotten more, more important because in t- about 2015, we went to an e-court process where, you know, a lot of our work is done on a computer. I mean, in terms of, you know, how cases are processed, traffic tickets are processed, just day-to-day operations, signing of search warrants, all these things are, are done over the computer. And so in order for that process to have integrity, there has to be systems in place, you know, cybersecurity systems to try to ward off hacks. And we have an office in St. Paul that is devoted just to that, to trying to protect our systems to make sure they're safe and sound. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, the public opinions. They're on both sides. If you take the Roe versus Wade case, you have some very passionate opinions on both sides uh, of the uh, debate. Should public opinion have play into a role? Should, uh, you know, if they, they look, uh, if the Supreme Court would say, hey, look, uh, I guess, you know, 60 some, 68 percent or somebody uh, or some such number are uh, favorable, consider themselves uh, pro-choice, while the other 30-some represent the opposite end of the spectrum. Should polls and things like that, public opinion, have any... uh any play in uh, the Supreme Court's decisions? It's, it's an excellent question, Jeff, and I've thought a lot about that. Well, you know, we take an oath to decide uh, cases based on the Constitution, and we're we're obliged to do that without fear or favor. In other words, we're supposed to be making decisions, and we do make decisions based upon what we believe is the law demands. We're not out taking, you know polls based on draft opinions hey would you know what a certain amount of people think about this that isn't how it works um this united states supreme court once you are appointed to that position under article three of the constitution that is a lifetime appointment those justices do not have to stand for elections they don't they they don't have that kind of electoral accountability judges in state court do uh, judges in state court file for election uh, they get six-year terms and they stand for election and in some states it's a retention election in other states it's uh, you know just a, a question a question of who's running against you and so you know to the extent that public opinion has a has a place there obviously the voters have a chance to to weigh in on on, on a justice or a judge in terms of uh, election but no we're not deciding cases based on public Public opinion that would be a, a slippery slope. I can think of the, 
you know, think of those civil rights decisions that were issued uh, by the Burger Court in the 50s and 60s that were uh, undoubtedly terribly unpopular in certain parts of our country. And, you know, and, you know, the court spoke with moral authority in Brown, Brown versus Board of Education, for example, the de- de- school desegregation case overturning, you know, the Jim Crow segregation of public schools. That was a unanimous decision of the court um, from justices from all sorts of backgrounds. And I think that really reflected a moral and legal underpinning of, of you know, what, what it meant to be a country that was hopefully free from segregation. And, you know, the, the, the court is, is acutely, I think, aware of its, of its um, place in the trifecta of government, you know, the three branches. But, you know, as Alexander Hamilton said, we don't have the power of the sword or the power of the purse. We have to, you know, convince by hopefully the, the strength of the, the writing and the, in the process that goes into the writing and to reach decisions that are, are, are reasonable based on the constitution and, and lawful. And so I, I, we are not, um, conducting, you know, polls, uh, to determine, you know, what, what we should do. Sometimes we have to make really hard decisions, not based on what we want the law to be, but what the law is and, you know, what the law you know, should be in the future. Oftentimes, you know, those are issues that the legislature really needs to wrestle with. I mean, those are the policy decisions are the legislature is really uniquely in a position to debate on that. It's not for us to act as a super legislature and decide, you know, we, we decree, you know, this or that. Now we do say whether or not a law is constitutional or not, we do have that power and we have to say that. And sometimes we have, have uh, stepped in where we think a law crosses a line into an area of unconstitutionality. You know, I find the uh, United States, I'm a little more familiar with the United States Constitution than I am the Minnesota, because I'm not in any way, shape, or form. uh, (laughs) You're not alone, Joe. I I have no idea what the Minnesota Constitution (laughs) says, but the U.S. Constitution, especially if you look at the first 12 amendments, is 12 of the Bill of Rights, uh, you know, for so many. Boy, it's kind of spectacularly vague, but at the same point... (laughs) Same time, very much to the point. Minnesota's Constitution, is it similarly written? Yes. Okay. We have a Bill of Rights. Uh, some of the language is, is almost verbatim from the U.S. Constitution, but others, others, uh, other parts of the Constitution are very different. And uh, it, it's we, we have historically tried to construe the Minnesota Constitution to provide rights that are synonymous with the federal Constitution, just to not create too much of a difference. But on occasion, we have construed the Minnesota Constitution to provide more rights than the federal Constitution has in certain areas and you know we we take that opportunity to do that um, very seriously and we don't do it frequently but the court has spoken on that and i think it is something that many minnesotans aren't aware that we do have a constitution in minnesota and that it's important uh, for you know things uh, you know where maybe the federal constitution has been construed one way the state constitution maybe could be construed a little differently and so sometimes we do get arguments along those lines as far as amendments to the uh, state constitution, I understand that happens quite more frequently than it does on the national scale. Have you had to deal with any uh, amendments of the constitution in your time there? Uh, not since I've been there. Um, you know, there have been 
some high-profile efforts to amend the Constitution, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years in particular areas. Uh, you know, it's tough to amend the, even the state Constitution, frankly, mm-hmm. particularly with divided government at the state level. When you've got different parties that are, you know, in the governorship, the House and the Senate, you know, that that's that to even get it on the ballot uh, for for approval is, is a challenge. Uh, the federal Constitution requires ratification by the states of any amendment uh, of, I don't remember what this specific number is, if it's two-thirds, but yeah, that's intended to be a very difficult process. Um, Minnesota's Constitution, likewise, isn't amended frequently, but there have been efforts to do so, and, uh, you know, it's it's that's part of the, the process. Citizens that think the Constitution, Constitution should be changed have the right to lobby their, you know, um, legislators to do that. Uh, once again, we're talking with us, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice uh, Gordon Moore. The name of the program is Legal Talk. It's a new once-a-month program on the third Monday of every month, usually hosted by uh, Rich Larson, who is out today, and, of course, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Moore as well. Getting back to, I guess, that leak and leaks in general, um, do you see in this particular case, because... I guess nobody's really known if that's even happened. It happens so rare, uh, rarely. Is that going to make uh, some changes? The court change some of their procedures, uh, some of the ways the, that they operate their business. Excellent question. The U.S. Marshal was assigned by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to investigate the source of the leak. And to my understanding, there's been no report issued yet, or at least no public accounting for what happened. So I think we need to first wait and see what they find out, if they can determine where the leak came from and, and you know, what the motives were, the person that was behind it. You know, was it accidental for some reason? Seems unlikely, but I think they have to look at all possibilities. Um, once that process is finished and they, they have a accounting as to what happened, then I would imagine there might be some discussions about some changes in procedures, uh, to, particularly if a procedure is viewed as having been responsible for it. You know, we hire people uh, to work with the court that are just outstanding, I mean, at all levels, our, our clerks, our judicial assistants, our staff attorneys. These, these are people of the highest integrity. I have complete confidence in the Minnesota Supreme Court's staff and process. I don't worry for a second about, you know, confidentiality, but I think this this whole discussion has caused us to step back just a little and make sure that we're not assuming something, that we're not taking things for granted. I had a meeting with my staff almost immediately just to talk about it, talk about the reactions to it and, and you know, just to make a the importance of a reminder to all of us about the importance of confidentiality and preserving what should be kept confidential. Um, you know, the, the court speaks with its opinions and those opinions are issued uh, on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock in the morning at the state court website. And until that opinion is issued, is issued nothing is final. Mm-hmm. Once again, Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore is with us. That's about all the questions I have for today, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to pass along? Well, Jeff, I, uh, it's it's just been a pleasure to work with you and Rich and, and talking about the legal system. I would encourage listeners, if they have a particular um, item of interest or if a question, um, you know, they could certainly contact Rich uh, at the radio station with ideas. You know, there may be some things, again, that we really can't talk about uh, in, in a radio show context, but general questions. 
questions about the legal system are welcomed. Uh, questions about uh, how the state court system operates, uh, district court, court of appeals, tax court, Supreme Court, be happy to try to answer them. So I would encourage uh, listeners to reach out to Rich. Uh, a few have, but we've gotten some nice input already, and hopefully that will continue. And what we'd like to do is build this so it's a little bit more of an interactive process. I don't think we're envisioning necessarily a call-in show type of format, but uh, you know, I'd like to be to be able to devote a segment of our time to answering questions that you know we can't answer and we think might be of interest to the listening audience. All right, and once again for our listeners, that's uh, Rich at KYMNRadio.net, or you can just type it into a news at KYMNRadio.net. Uh, we'll be glad to uh, pass that information along. Uh, Justice Moore, thank you so much for coming in today. We certainly appreciate it, and I know Rich is looking forward to working with you in the uh, future on this program. He's really excited yes, about it, is. and I'm uh, I'm glad I could fill in at least one time because it's a fascinating subject. Well, it's wonderful to be be here, Jeff. Thanks for filling in for Rich and doing such a good job, and and we're looking forward to continuing it. All right. Once again, you're listening to uh, Legal Talk with Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore from Minnesota. We have uh, coming up uh, next, well, the, the program is on every third Monday of the month. So coming up next month, he'll be joined once again by Rich Larson.